don't know what winning should look like, you might never stop fighting. And even more frightening, you might be fighting for the wrong thing. You might be fighting for something you should actually be fighting against. Those are the words I jotted down as I saw some of the first images from the uh, January 6, 2021 um, assault on the Capitol. The most concerning about that riot was images of people holding Christian flags, wearing shirts that said Jesus saves, carrying crosses, holding Bibles, all while kicking police officers, defiling senators' desks, and destroying historic artifacts. Ultimately, five police officers died during that riot. In the aftermath, I began to think about these Christian images that were on display during it. The Washington Post did an article on how rioters believed they were answering a call from God as they were assaulting police officers and destroying the Capitol building. Uh, the Religion News Service covered the fact that after they breached the Capitol, the, many of the rioters stopped to pray on the Senate floor, thanking God for allowing them to take the space. Time Magazine, at the one-year anniversary of the riot, wrote an article calling it not a political riot, but a religious one. I can't help but feel like, at least for a large number of American Christians, that we've missed what Jesus was all about. We've defined winning very differently than Jesus would and did. We evoke his name, but we've missed his message. We wear his t-shirts, we use symbols of the cross, but we don't model how he lived and loved. We don't clothe our lives in his teachings. The message of Jesus was counter-cultural. It was subversive. It was an upside-down vision of reality. Jesus believed we win by losing. That's not the story we hear most of the time in our life. All week long, nearly everyone we meet in every show we watch and every book we read and every song we hear is saying the same things. The strong win, the rich win, the powerful, the influential, and the intelligent win. And we forget that Jesus says losers are the real winners. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore this upside-down vision of reality. And this isn't just a Jesus thing. This is throughout the whole Bible. God is constantly choosing the secondborn instead of the firstborn. Jesus says the last is going to win over the first, the poor over the rich. And so we're going to explore these themes that run throughout the Bible over the next few weeks and talk about how God has this upside-down vision of reality where we win by losing. And I want to start with the story of Peter and Jesus the night he was betrayed. The story is recorded in all the Gospels, but today we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 45. Luke 22, starting in verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, this is Jesus, he's praying, he's about to go to the cross, he's about to take on sin and death for all of us, to free us, and he's praying, he's wrestling with this huge thing he's about to do and he goes back to his disciples and he finds them asleep exhausted from sorrow why are you sleeping he asks them get up and pray so you will not fall into too temptation while he was still speaking a crowd came up and the man who was called judas one of the twelve was leading them he approached jesus to kiss him but jesus asked him judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss and when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, is this the time? Should we strike with our swords? And one of them just went ahead, jumped the gun, pulled out a sword, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. 
And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. This is the hour when darkness reigns. Even though the incident of the servant's ear being cut off is recorded in all four Gospels, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18, the servant and the disciple are only named in John's account. The servant's name is Malchus, and John tells us that it's Simon Peter, who, Simon Peter, all throughout the Gospels, he's always jumping the gun, you know, like he's the first to ask a question, he's the first to jump out of the boat, and he, in here, he's the first to draw a sword and strike a blow. Only Luke, though, records that Jesus heals the servant. Each account gives us a few different details, but the story is the same. Jesus is betrayed. In first century um, culture, it was common when you were greeting someone to kiss them on the cheek. Uh, if you go to some cultures, right, around the world today, that's still the custom. And so Judas approaches Jesus with a greeting of friendship and community and relationship, all while he's betraying him. Now, the religious leaders are coming to arrest Jesus, and Peter draws a sword, and he swings, most scholars think, at Malchus's head. But he isn't a trained soldier, so he likely misses and only cuts off his ear instead. It's not like Peter was like, I'm just going to cut your ear off. You know, like, he was probably swinging at his head, and he's just not very good with swords. He's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. Now, Jesus could hear, he could be like, guys, give me all your swords. And like an anime character, you know, have you seen an animation where... Like a character has swords and they're like we don't want to animate all the sword running around So they just show a whole bunch of sword slashes and then the guy's standing right back there and everybody just drops over Jesus could do that like he could have done that um, But he doesn't Jesus doesn't say give me all your swords I'm gonna run around at supersonic speed and kill everybody before they even know what happens Instead he heals the ear of the man arresting him and he submits to arrest and we know where this is going, right? Jesus ultimately is nailed to a cross, and he's killed. And the final miracle before the crucifixion is Jesus healing the damage his disciples did to someone who was coming to try and hurt Jesus. The last miracle that Jesus does before the crucifixion is healing the hurt his community caused. And maybe you're here, or maybe you're watching online, and you've been hurt by Christians or by church. Don't write off Jesus. Don't write off Jesus because of the images of things you've seen of people doing things in his name that don't look anything like him. Don't write off Jesus because people hold Bibles as they kick police officers to death. Or don't write off Jesus because people wave crosses as they defame national landmarks. Don't give up on Jesus because of what people have said to you or how they've treated you, how they've mistreated you, how they've made you feel unwanted or unwelcome because Jesus wants to be in a relationship with you. Ultimately, Jesus was a healer, and his ultimate healing would come on the cross as he died to heal the most broken part inside myself and inside of you. And yet, the New Testament authors don't see the cross as a defeat. In fact, over and over again in the New Testament, they see the cross as his inauguration as king of the world. They see in this symbol of losing him winning victory over sin and death and the devil. It's a weird thing that we have crosses all over the world. Like, that would be like putting out an electric chair and being like, that's our religious symbol right there. The cross was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of Roman oppression. And yet, 
Jesus flips things. He turns things that look like darkness into light. He takes things that look like symbols of losing, and they become the symbol of victory over sin and death and the devil. For thousands of years now, people have rallied around a symbol that the Romans used for death and oppression and intimidation, and now we see it as resurrection and new life and victory. If we think winning means being more powerful— or people who think or look like us being in power, then we have forgotten that Jesus' most critical victory over sin and death was when he was dying on a cross. That's the victory that we celebrate is when he looks most weak. And let's back up for a minute, because after Jesus is illegally arrested in secret at night, they send him to the Roman governor, Pilate, to approve the execution. The Jewish puppet government could arrest people, they could make arrests, but they couldn't um, execute anyone. The Roman government had given them authority to make arrests, but not to execute anyone. So they had to get Roman authority for that. So they send him to Pilate to get the go-ahead to kill him. And Pilate begins to question him, trying to find a reason to kill him. The Romans aren't painted as the bad guy in the story of Jesus' death. Like, if you read through it, the Romans are just kind of like ignorant accomplices to Jesus' death. But they're not actually painted as the bad guys, which is really interesting, because in the first century, the Jewish people hated the Romans. Instead, the bad guys in the story of Jesus' death are the religious people. It's the religious who attempt to weaponize religion in order to consolidate their power, and Jesus is a threat to that power, and they want him gone. Notice how Jesus responds to Pilate's questions in John 18, 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, Jesus is not saying that his kingdom doesn't have physical, real-world implications. He's not like, I got a sky palace kingdom, and so whatever happens down here, I don't care, you know? Like, kill me, whatever, you know, bad things happen in the world, I don't care. I got my sky palace kingdom, it's over there, and I'm good. He's not saying his kingdom is off in the clouds and has no physical presence on earth. He's saying his kingdom doesn't operate like earthly kingdoms that gain power by violence and wealth. He says his kingdom operates differently because it originates in a different place. When I first moved to Philly, I did things differently because I wasn't from here. I didn't operate like a Philadelphian. I didn't, um, when I sat down at a restaurant, I didn't say, I'll have a wooter, please. Like, I just didn't say that. I said water. That's what I thought it was called. Now I know better. Um, you know, when I was sitting down at the table and there was some food that I wanted on the other side, I didn't say, hey, pass me that, John. Hey, hand me that, John. Uh, I just never said that. Like, I would have been like, what is this alien language, you know? I didn't do that. I remember the first time someone I was eating with ordered Scrapple, and I was like, I don't know if I can eat anymore, you know? Or somebody brought in bagels here to the art center, and I was like, what's a bagel? Like... What are, what are you trying to feed me? Um, or when a friend came over for the first time and wanted to play Mario Kart. And I was like, it's Mario, Mario Kart. He's like, no, Mario Kart. I'm like, okay, whatever. I remember the first time I went to a sports bar with a friend and he kept shouting, go Eagles. And I was like, I thought the Eagles were playing, you know? I did things differently because I wasn't from here. Jesus is saying he operates differently because he's from a different place. His kingdom is different because it originates in a different place, a place where power is overcome by sacrifice, a place where love overcomes hate and light overcomes darkness. 
It reminds me of that line in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Here's Aslan, the Christ-like lion in the story. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time began, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Throughout human history, we have seen the same thing over and over again. Like the witch, we can look back through history and see the same things happen over and over again. The rich and powerful oppress the weak and the poor. If you have enough power, you can rewrite history. You can paint yourself as the savior, even though you were the conqueror. You can tell lies until no one believes the truth. But Jesus says there is a deeper reality that started before the human history began. Before the world began, a reality forged in the bonds of the Trinity, the relationship that predates all of creation. And he says, there's a deeper reality. And he's like, I've come to tell you about that. And it's not where the powerful and the rich and the oppressor wins. The kingdom of Jesus toppled Rome, not with swords, but with sacrifice. Jesus doesn't need defending. Jesus doesn't call us to take up arms and fight in his name. He calls us to love our neighbors. He calls us to take up our crosses and follow his example. See, it's always easier to fight for Jesus than it is to die for Jesus. It's easier to wield a crusade than it is to pick up a cross. Jesus told us to pick up our crosses, not our pitchforks. Jesus never told us to fight for him. Jesus told us to follow him. Him. Tertullian was an early church father, and he wrote extensively. He's considered the founder of Western theology. In one of his works, Apologeticus, he says this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christian blood that is spilled grows the church. Now, that doesn't make good sense. Right? When there are less Christians, when there, it is more costly to be a Christian, when you could easily lose your life for this thing, according to Tertullian, that's when the church grows. When Christians surrender to the slaughter, the church grows. That doesn't make sense unless there's a deeper reality, a reality that Jesus seemed to understand and tell us about. When churches grasp for power and control, when we have seminars on how to grow, that's when we will see Christianity falter and decline. Do you know where the fastest growing Christian church in the world is right now? Sorry. Africa, close. China, close. North Korea, no. Okay, I'll just tell you. Lots of good guesses, though. Iran. It's illegal to be a Christian in Iran. You can be imprisoned. You can be killed. Your body can be violated by the government under government law if you're found to be a Christian. Imprisoned, you, your uh, business will be taken from you, and you could be killed. They have no buildings. They have very little theological education. It's mostly woman-led. 20 years ago, there were 5,000 Christians in Iran. There are now close to 1 million Christians. And it's not because they had beautiful church buildings in all the best, fastest-growing locations with young couples moving into the suburbs. 
It's not because they had charismatic speakers with deep insights and great Instagram profiles. It's because they realized the upside-down nature of the kingdom, that Christianity spreads in weakness, not in strength. The church doesn't grow through weapons or war. It grows through steadfast, selfless love in the face of weapons and war. We don't draw the blood of our enemies to spread Christianity. Like our master Jesus, we allow our blood to be shed in order to spread the church. Now, this way of thinking does not make sense unless there is a resurrection from the dead. To allow our enemy to kill us seems like losing, but the resurrection flips the script. Returning violence for violence never builds the kingdom of God. It reinforces the kingdom of darkness. And violence always leaves two victims, the person getting hurt and the person doing the hurting. Jesus heals Malchus's ear, but after his death and resurrection, Jesus has to go and heal Peter's heart. He goes and finds Peter and heals him because he still has that violence in his heart. Because when you raise a weapon to hurt someone, you're not just killing them, potentially. You're killing something inside yourself. Jesus created the idea of nonviolence as a counter to oppression and injustice. If Jesus is just made up, if Jesus was just some historical guy who got killed by the Romans, and we've just ex you know, created all this stuff around him over time, somebody sure was smart who came up with this idea because it goes against everything in our nature and everything in our human history, and yet it is so true. Nonviolence can defeat the most powerful army in the world. Nonviolence can topple the most defended injustice and oppression. Gandhi, who won independence for India through years of nonviolent protests, is said to have been influenced by Jesus. He's famously quoted as saying, I like your Jesus, I just don't like your Christians. Man, you don't have to raise your hand. Sometimes I feel that. And Martin Luther King Jr., who led the civil rights movement right here in North America, was a pastor and was deeply influenced by the teachings of Jesus. Um, he said this in 1964, nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon. Indeed, it is a weapon unique in history, which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. Now, I know what TikTok influencers are saying. Like, I, I don't, I should not destroy precious art. Um, I'm not living in a bubble or under a rock. I know what TikTok influencers are saying, especially to young men. Like, I have nephews who are watching these muscle-building guys on the internet who are saying crazy things like, get strong, get rich, become powerful so you can get what you want, so you can be with who you want, so you can make the world like what you want. And to that, I say this, that path will never make you into a person that deep down we all want to be. Only the path of Jesus will. We only win by losing. The path of following Jesus is believing that when I am weak, he is at his strongest in me and through me. When I am defeated, God is defeating dark spiritual strongholds that would be energized by violence. When I am a peacemaker, I am ripping the fangs from the demonic mouths of dark spiritual forces at work in our world. We don't have to have a Christian in the White House. We don't need to have a Christian majority in this country. We don't need millions of dollars or flashy buildings. The kingdom of God thrives in sacrifice, in weakness, and in apparent defeat. It is there that the Spirit of God does the supernatural. It is there that he turns what looks like losing into winning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and not raising an army to wipe out all the oppressors, 
but instead teaching us something about the deeper reality, the reality of your kingdom that is coming, where light dismantles darkness, not by becoming a stronger darkness, but by being something completely different. God, will you forgive us as Christians in this country for so often thinking that how we affect change, how we bring about your kingdom, how we grow your church is about having lots of money and lots of influence and a lot of power, owning a lot of big buildings and making sure we have resources and influence and political um, power. Lord, it has nothing to do with that. The supernatural power of your spirit works in us when we are in weakness and in desperation for you. God, forgive me for wanting control in my own life instead of just trusting you and saying, God, when I'm not in control, that's when you most can be in control in my life. And so, Lord, I submit to you control of this church, control of my life and my marriage. God, I ask that you will come rushing in, that you will turn what looks like losing into winning. And you will remind us there is a deeper reality than what we can see where 